David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. What I want to do in this series, just the next three talks, I want to look at basically the formation of what we have come to know as Rabbinic Judaism. I want to come to terms really with what we mean by the Talmudic period, and I want to see how that fits into a broader geopolitical force that seems to be moving the world in a certain direction, and as with all things in history, might have relevance for today. Because when I've talked about this before, I have generally talked about this period, certainly the commencement of this period, in terms of the great tragedies that befell the Jewish people, the the destruction of the temple, and so on. But the focus tonight in this couple of weeks is going to be a little different. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at the end of tonight's talk, And then we're going to go and I'm going to show you how we arrive at that. There's a very strange journey. Well, before we talk about that journey, I'm going to show you when that is. When are we talking? I can't do without a timeline, so let's go back to basics. What's that? Yeah, but what is it? That's Jewish history. I don't want to take for granted anyone's lack of confusion in this room. I want to be absolutely crystal clear. That's Jewish history. Minus 2000, 2000 in the kind of Gregorian kind of way, right? Zero. 1000 minus 1000 minus 1500 minus 500 500 1500. That's the span. Yep. I'm going to be talking about a period here. 0 to 500 approx, which is what is known in capital J, capital H Jewish history as the Talmudic period. So far, so good. Now we're going to zoom in. This is zero. This is 500. This period, which we call the Talmudic, this is fundamental. We can't really move without this knowledge, so I just have to lay it down very clearly. Otherwise, you won't know what I'm referring to. This period called the Talmudic is divided into two sub-periods. Two sub-periods. The first sub-period goes up to about 200 and is called the Tanaitic. That period produces the Mishnah. And the next period, sub-period of the Talmudic, of the Talmudic, from around 200 to around 500, is a sub-period called The the Amoraic, 
You don't have to remember all these. It's just so that you have a basic framework in your mind when I refer to them. And the Aramaic period produces what we call the Gemara. And the Mishnah and Gemara together make the Talmud. Everybody clear? And we'll talk about what those things are and how they fit together. That's one aspect. So, now I need to zoom in again. Zero to 100. The first century of that period, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 60, 70, 80, 90. A period in Jewish history with its own title called First Century Palestine. It's a funny title because it wasn't actually Palestine then. It was Judea. But that's what it's known. It's known as First... And because it's so unbelievably packed and saturated with personalities and events, I've said this before and I could say it again, we could meet like this every week for an entire year and not really, really get further than a little bit below the surface of this century. This is a very, very, very important century in world history as well as Jewish history, and we are right at the nexus of that. But when I've spoken about first century Palestine in the past, we have generally focused on the political events that led up to the destruction of the, first temp of the second temple, followed by Masada, and all of those terrible tragedies associated with the great Jewish revolt that happens around between around 66 and 73, the first of the great Jewish revolts. And we normally talk about those and we think about those issues in the lead up to Tisha B'Av and so on, and we go into great detail on them, and we're kind of familiar with them. So they will only be a backdrop to what I'm going to focus on in these talks. In these talks, I want to see the rabbis playing geopolitical chess. I want to see what encounters we have with the people that formed the very basis of our identity and the way we live our life and how that affected their relationships with not just rulers and governors, but emperors. And in order to do that, before we even begin, well, actually, I'm gonna, I said I would start at the end, so I'm going to start at the end. In 96... At the end of the period I'm going to talk about tonight, four sages, highly, highly respected spiritual sages, not just of the leading four sages, not, not just among the leading four sages, they were the leading four spiritual figures of the Jewish world, travelled on a ship to go to speak directly to the Roman Emperor. So there's the Mediterranean, and they're living here in the land of Israel, flitting kind of between Yavne here on the coast and Usha in the Galil, and they get on a ship and they go to Italy to meet with Dolmitian. Those four rabbis, well, there's a little bit of discussion on exactly who the four rabbis were. We know definitively who three of them were. And the fourth one, there's a bit of a historical 
unfocused about that. It could be one of two figures. But the four rabbis are, and these are not, when I say rabbis, these are not just rabbis. These are spiritual giants. Each of these individuals is like the Dalai Lama times Jonathan Sachs times the Rumbum times 10 on crack. Each one is a huge spiritual giant and all four of them, the four leading spiritual figures of the Jewish world are on this boat together in a mission that was so important that they left immediately after Yom Kippur on their way to Rome knowing that they would spend the festival of Sukkot on the boat. And on the boat they built a sukkah and so on. Who were these four rabbis? Does anyone know who these four rabbis were? I know that at least one person knows. But he's got his head in his hands. So now, it's Rabban Gamliel II, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, or according to some, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkodos, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah, and Rabbi Akiva. And so now I'm going to go back. How do we end up with these four dudes on a boat on their way to Rome? What happened there? Why were they going? What happened there? And in order to unpack that, we're going to go back to here so that we can really get a clear picture of who these rabbis were because that kind of thing could not have happened a hundred years earlier. And the whole spiritual nature of the Jewish world is different a century before. So now I want to take us there. Now this, this is the world. This is the known world as far as Jews are concerned. All the Jews in the world that we know of from that period lived in a world that was dominated by two fundamental spheres of influence. And the more we understand that, the more we start to unravel our reality today. That's not an exaggeration. These two enormous spheres of influence, one of which, of course, was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire went from here, went all the way down here, all this, there's Turkey. So all the way here, Syria, all the way along North Africa. That's the Roman Empire. And the other massive domain which goes like this, I'll do it in purple, they would like that, is this, which is the Parthian Empire, with its center in Iran. That's going to change, it's going to become the Sassanid Empire, it's going to go through a whole different number of religious and political evolutions, but that is the East, and that is the West. And the land of Israel is here. Literally a last buffer state against the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire begins on the other side of what today we call Jordan, which at that time was called Perea. The land of Israel itself is not one homogenous unit for the Romans. 
it's divided into four provinces. Four provinces that are treated kind of separately. And they have separate identities. The Galil in the north, Samaria, Shomron, Samaria in the center, Eudea or Judea in the whole Jerusalem area and uh, the what well, you know the the deserts right down to the Dead Sea and even as far west as the sea as well and beneath beneath that Idumea which had been conquered a century earlier by the Hasmoneans that was the land of Israel the emperor in the year zero is whom Tiberius is going to take over in around 14. Who's the emperor? Augustus. Octavian, who was elected Augustus. He was such an immense figure that even for hundreds of years afterwards, people still thought that he was alive and ruling the Roman Empire. He was massive. He was the first of the Roman emperors. So that's one thing. Jews are living at this point right dotted throughout the Roman Empire. We have an enormous community in Alexandria, in Egypt. We have a very, very dynamic and growing community in Rome. And we have little dotted, very isolated communities throughout the Roman Empire, also in Antioch and to some extent in Syria. And we have Jews living in the Parthian Empire, right in the heart of the Parthian Empire, in what is today Iraq, that was then Babylonia, around the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates, all the way through to Persia. There are Jewish communities here as well that are outside the Roman Empire. So that's the first thing we need to understand. This is the world that we are looking at. Then we're going to zoom in. And we're going to zoom in on the land of Israel and its various provinces. And we're going to realize that we are in a world where there is, internally in terms of a Jewish perspective, there is a fundamental institution which we call the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. Yeah? This temple has been standing now for five centuries. That's a long time in the ancient world. This temple was built before the Acropolis. This temple was built, well, certainly well before the Great Wall of China, but I'm trying to think there's virtually very, very few buildings in the ancient world in the year zero would have been older and certainly none more magnificent than the temple. This temple has recently been completely renovated brick by brick and it is now the most magnificent religious structure in the world. And it was intended to be so by the person who sponsored its renovation, which was, of course, Herod. Now, every single word and every single topic I'm going to mention tonight is a subject in itself. Just because I say the word Herod, I can't start standing here for talk, start talking about Herod because we will be here all night. But you just need to be aware that I'm really, really condensing. But we do understand that Herod had renovated the Beit HaMikdash in the preceding couple of decades. 
But who's really running the place? The priests are running the temple, the Kohanim are running the temple, but who's running Judea? The Romans. The Romans. Now the Romans up to this point, well, actually, it's not quite accurate to say the Romans. The Roman soldiers are there as enforcers, but they're not actually in charge of the civil, local civil administration because that is in the hands of Herod and the very last remnants of the kind of Idumean Hasmonean dynasty that Herod tried to set up. But we are also developing at this time a very unique division within the Jewish world. It's not the first or the last time we've had divisions within the Jewish world, but this one doesn't seem to have an easy resolution. Because what is emerging by the late 1st century BCE and the beginning of the 1st century CE, what is emerging is basically two fundamentally different pictures of Judaism. Each one of which believes that it is the true inheritor and the true destiny of the Jewish people. Now, I really want to put us in this consciousness. It is not the case. You know, you know very well that now that we have the State of Israel now, 2018, yeah? Don't be alarmed. I don't want anybody running out of the house, of the building screaming, right? I'm going to tell you something, right? And some of you are going to just turn around and say, David, take your medication. But I'm going to tell you, at some point, they will build the temple. They will attempt to. Not when I say they. I'm probably not talking about people that live in North Caulfield. I'm talking about we, but I'm talking about the very general we that includes some of the more gung-ho elements of the Jewish world. There will be an attempt to rebuild the temple. This, of course, will be a total theological orgasmathon for the Christians because they are expecting us to do that. But there's a fundamental difference between the temple that stood in Jerusalem in the year zero and any temple that would be built in our generation. And that fundamental difference is a difference in consciousness because the second temple period was founded by prophets, by prophets from scripture. It's in the Bible, ordained or zapped in some way by the divine to give approval to this project. We do not have any such theological approval today. Any approval that we have of what we're doing as a nation in the world, we're giving ourselves. But in those days, it was a divine mandate to have the temple. And so it wasn't even a thought that that temple would ever not be there. And the dual picture that is emerging is on the one hand, and I have to be very careful with the setup because we could lose time completely just in backgrounding it because it's so interesting. On the one hand is a picture of, which is brought to us by an elite group of priests whose own origin as a priestly cult is a little bit obscure. They, of course, claimed a very, very ancient heritage, but hist most historians would put them as a little, a little bit more recent. 
And that, of course, are the Tzdukim, or as we know them in English, the Sadducees. And they are very temple-focused. They believe that Judaism is about the priests and the temple and the sacrifices and purity and impurity and all of the many, many details that attend to that. They famously dismiss any suggestion that, that there is an ongoing, authentic, oral tradition to the Torah. They repudiate that. They are literal fundamentalists. They also do not believe in a number of the theological premises that are going to go on and become foundational to Judaism, such as the journey of the soul, the afterlife, the messianic period, all of these things which we der derived from the writings of divinely inspired prophets, they repudiated, they repudiated, it's about the temple. And in quite a number of other ways, they had a different outlook. The alternative picture is what has become known in contradistinction to the Sadducees, and I say this word extremely advisedly, don't use it in polite company. And that, of course, is the word Pharisaic. The Pharisees, of course, come from the Hebrew word, the Prushim. They would have been happy to call themselves Prushim, but we need to bear in mind that the Pharisaic class, if you like, was very, very complex in itself. In the Pharisaic class, you have people that were absolutely obsessed with the minutiae of law, and you were people who were running around like basically new age hippies, uh, just wanting everybody to be in love. This is a very complex thing, but everybody who wasn't a Sadducee basically fell in the Pharisaic class. The Pharisees believed, and their entire outlook was premised upon the fact that, yes, the temple is important, but it's not really where the real picture of Judaism is. The real picture of Judaism is in the transmission of an oral interpretation of the Torah, oral and dynamic. The Torah is adaptive to the circumstances that are brought to it. We have a number of fundamental guiding principles by which we interpret the Torah. And any case that we look at or anything that we look at or any idea that we entertain is seen in respect of the Word of God and its orally handed down dimension. And so they were recording and path transmitting. They weren't so much recording, but they were certainly absorbing and transmitting already the teachings of previous generations to build up a kind of common law. Now, throughout the preceding century, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had been going up and down in waning and waxing influence. During the late Hasmonean period, under kings like Alexander Yanai, the Sadducees rose to great ascendance. They basically emerged out of Alexander Yanai's civil war in the minor 70s as the dominant class 
But after Alexander Yana, and particularly when his wife Shlomtzion Hamalka took over, those of you who are familiar with the history know what I'm saying, brought about a realignment. And there's no question that the Pharisaic factions had much, much more in common with the everyday people they were in touch with than these elite and aristocratic priests. Therefore, the rabbis are starting to investigate not just abstract problems in the Torah, but actual day-to-day issues that they were being sought about, either for judgment or advice. And each time they apply the Torah, it creates a new precedent and a new type of interpretation. But it's very organic. It's very organic. The rabbis also have, and they are, by the end, by the time we get to zero, these power plays are reflected in this build-up and structure of this nominal body that the Romans allowed the Jews to retain called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a big fat court of 71 priests and rabbis and doctors and sages and anyone who basically, you know the sort of thing that would be created if we made a Sanhedrin in Melbourne, the sort of people that would be on it. That's how, and maybe we can't imagine that actually, I'm trying to think. So, and of course these party power plays were carrying out in the Sanhedrin. It was a kind of court slash parliament. But it had limited jurisdiction because the ultimate authority in town was the Romans. But certainly for religious matters, it was the Sanhedrin. But, due to the decimations in the Pharisaic class, and they are the ones that are going to go on to take on the brand name of the rabbis eventually, not yet. But due to their decimations in the Hasmonean persecutions of the Pharisees, there were a number of generations leading up to here that suffered for lack of proper understanding and proper education and proper transmission. There were a number of high-profile cases where the rabbis themselves turned around and said, we don't know what the law is meant to be in this case. We've lost those transmissions. And in one very, very famous case, it emerged that there was living in Jerusalem someone who had kind of recently come back from Babylonia and who had previously studied under the previous genuine leadership of the Prushim because throughout much of the previous century the transmission had, had, it, had happened in pairs. He emerged from the last of the pairs and his name of course is Hillel. However Hillel's rise to influence is shrouded in legend and some mystery There's no question that by the time you get to just about here, he is the dominant figure of this new kind of spiritual movement within the Jewish world that is interpreting the Torah according to a set, a defined set of what we call very fancy sounding, what I'm going to say sounds fancy but it's easy to understand, hermeneutic principles. In other words, I'm not just going to interpret the Torah willy-nilly, nor am I going to just rely on only what I've heard. 
There are a set of interpretational principles that I can apply to Scripture to work out what the law is going to be in any particular case. Hillel had seven of them. Over the course of the next couple of hundred years, those seven are going to go on to become 13, and in some cases 32. Most people are familiar with the 13 principles of interpretation of Rabbi Ishmael, but that's not for another century. Hillel has seven. Now, why suddenly, what has happened in the Jewish world intellectually that suddenly people are talking about hermeneutic principles of interpretation? Do we see those systematic interpretations in the Bible? Do we see them? Does anyone in the Bible sit down and go, I'm going to tell you about seven steps by which to interpret this law, or 13 Logical, logical principles. Huh? They had to learn how to live when they were in political control of their own land. It was y yes, yes. But I'm talking now about where did it come from, this idea that we could understand the law of the Torah logically? From the Greeks. From the Greeks. We have to remember that the massive shift that has happened from the beginning of the Second Temple period, 500 years earlier to now, is this great big thing that sits right throughout the Second Temple period from around minus 300 onwards called Hellenism. And Hellenism brought a great many things. Not all of them were good. Most of them were pretty but they weren't all good. However, there were some things, the influence of which was inevitable. And one of those was the concept of making systems and applying logical rules to your data set. We can already see this influence at the end in the Pharisaic class already around here when Hillel announces that he has seven hermeneutic principles. Hillel, however, is only one major school at the time of the several schools that were emerging in the Pharisaic class. Who else, for example, was a school? Shammai, famously. Hillel, Shammai. They're all living here. This is almost, almost, almost the end of the preliminary things we need to understand. Hillel wasn't just an amazing spiritual figure, and I'm not going to go now into many of the sayings of Hillel. Some of you are, or in fact, I'm looking around the room, and I'm most certain that all of you are familiar with at least one or two of the famous sayings of Hillel. Have a look in Ethics of Our Fathers in Pirkei Have a look in many other places, and you will see the pronunciations of Hillel. Everything about Hillel's career was directed towards the interpretation of Torah according to one un fundamental underlying directive, which is Kvod Ha'adam, the dignity of the human being. He even enacted things that appear to be the opposite of Torah. The whole famous institution of Prosbul, by which people could lend money and be lent money on the eve 
of a sabbatical or jubilee year could be, and the Torah says that in those years all debts are cancelled and all lands returned. That would mean that people are not going to lend money and people are not going to borrow money. And he came up with an entire mechanism by which that can be circumvented. It true, true, there is an element of conceptual conceit about it. But just like, for example, today, you're going to get in a 10-story building on Shabbat, you're going to catch a Shabbat lift. You can jump up and down and say, I don't like the concept of a lift going up and down on Shabbat, but at the end of the day, how am I going to get to the top of the building without a heart attack? That's a very, very trite example, but things that we take for granted today about what rabbis do in order to allow people to live their life in the way that they want to and to have the Torah consistent in their life with that, that in rather than saying, no, the Torah says X, you want to do Y, so you can't, that is a massive shift within Judaism as a spiritual discourse and, of course, ran completely contrary to what the Sadducees would have been about. But Hillel wasn't just an extremely spiritual person. He was also a descendant of the royal household of David going back centuries. So when he became the kind of leader of the Jewish people, he became, he started a dynasty that is going to run right throughout this entire period that is absolutely remarkable. His son, Shimon ben Hillel, took over from Hillel. And we do not know a lot about Shimon ben Hillel, so he may not have lived long, because we do not have many things recorded by him or know much about him. But we do know a lot about his son, the grandson of Hillel, who became the dominant rabbinic figure when I say rabbinic figure, we're not thinking of rabbis yet. We are thinking of very, very free-thinking spiritual people who are walking around with the Torah embedded in their life, helping people to keep both the Torah and the dignity and purpose of their life as well, at the same time in very, very trying times. The Romans are in town. That figure is Rabban. The title Rabban is only referred for the greatest of rabbis. Rabban Gamliel, the first. Now, Rabban Gamliel was a great exemplar of purity and piety and learning. He's not the sort of person that's going to effect a revolution. That's going to come at other times. He's kind of like the ultimate picture of what his grandfather would have been striving towards. And he was extraordinarily liberal. Rabbanan Gamliel had many, many students, who is probably his most famous. I'm talking outside the Jewish world. <laughs> Paul. Now, Paul writes about Rabban Gamliel, as so do a number of the early Christian writers, and he receives an extremely favorable treatment on behalf of very, very early Christian writers, even though the basic tenure is against Judaism, so much so, in fact, that Pharisee became kind of like a pejorative word for 
and a, a, a stickler and an unkind person, but they have very nice things to say about Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel did not believe in the persecution of Christians. He was actually against that. He was very liberal. So long, you know, if someone wants to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that's not really my issue. My issue is what are they like as people, how honest are they, how charitable are they, and how are they with the Abrahamic covenant in keeping the commandments of the Torah and the fundamental basis by which we live. That's why we have a little bit of an issue as to understanding. I mean, but everything is a completely different, a whole subject in how we get from Paul as a student of Gamaliel to Paul on the way to Damascus. And we will be coming back to talk about Christianity because it is a hugely important part of this story. Rabban Gamaliel is the head of the Sanhedrin during the whole of the early Christian episodes. And eventually Rabban Gamaliel's son, Shimon ben Gamliel, the first. Shimon ben Gamliel. I'm taking it very, very methodically because I want everybody to have a very clear picture. This is something that I've never really got to do in this particular space because every time normally when we talk about these decades, I'm talking about the events leading up to the destruction of the temple and the Romans and all of that. But here we're actually able to look at the very, very kernel of what we call Chazal. The word Chazal, by the way, which is in the title of the talk, so I should probably just unpack that for a second. Chazal, of course, is an acronym. Chachameinu Zichronam Livracha, our sages of blessed memory. And in fact, in the wider perspective, Chazal could mean anyone that lived from, say, Joshua to um, Rabbi Ganendi could be called Chazal. But in a very specific sense, in a very specific sense, it really refers to the rabbis of the Tanaitic period. Those rabbis who composed and are mentioned in the Mishnah and the Midrash. They are referred to in a more specific sense as Chazal. And Hillel really, really kind of kicks off that project as we understand it by introducing hermeneutic principles and by applying the Torah in this way. There is something about the spiritual energy of the Tanaitic period that we as a people have lost in some way. There was a dynamic fluidity and everything was transmitted orally and nothing was allowed to be written down. Once you write things down, they congeal. And they become a religion. But Judaism wasn't like that. We had a written divine word, but it was dynamically interpreted. And Rabban Gamliel's son, Shimon ben Gamliel, didn't really get to be, express his full potential extensively because already um, shortly into his career, things really start heating up with the Romans and in fact we find him almost more as a political figure adopted onto the uh, famous uh, national council that was uh, set up to fight the great revolt and be a kind of like temporary government that was going to organize the defense of Judea uh, that obviously was completely vanquished and so on. Rabban Shimon Gamliel was killed in those wars probably by one of the other zealot factions. He was, in fact, a moderate on the National Council. 
Now, throughout this period, and, and now we're actually at the point that I want to start the talk. Throughout this period, and for quite some time before, these spiritual religious figures, all who, of whom you've all heard, we're just putting them now in place, didn't really deal with political leadership issues. They weren't the ones going on delegations to rulers. They saw themselves in a kind of a way like religious leaders are regarded today. When you send someone to go and see Donald Trump or Donald Trump, who do you send? You don't ring up the rabbi of your shul. You don't ring up the head of the yeshiva to say, could you please go to the White House and represent the Jewish people to him or to Putin or anyone? Who do you send today? Who goes? Who goes? Politicians, lay leaders, not religious figures, but the lay leaders of the Jewish world. Those who've risen from the ranks from going from boards of shuls to overseeing umbrella or Zionist organisations onto boards of deputies of states and countries, onto world Jewish congresses, onto this and onto that. Or in the case of Israel who go from the Knesset to being a minister, to being prime minister, to being president, whatever they do. But all of they are lay, those are lay leaders. This is part of why I'm raised at the very, very beginning about that boat trip. So throughout all these decades when we are coming under incredible pressure, none of the rabbis are engaging with the geopolitical forces of their time. In fact, there are some immense encounters that are happening with the Jewish world and geopolitical powers. I'm going to mention just very, very quickly, all of through, through this period, I'm going to invite to see if you can think of any of them, but I'm going to mention about five. But they were, I'm very quickly. But there were more. Anyone think of any of the great encounters with emperors in the decades leading up to here? Sorry? Well, Rabbi Akiva is here. Rabbi Akiva is later. Here's, just so people understand, 1980-70, here's the destruction of the temple. So, I'll give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Well, Yochanan ben Zakkai is the first one we're going to look at. But what I wanted to show was just very quickly in the Dekazeriya, because it's difficult to leave these out. There's a very, very fascinating and much unexplored case. Uh, in, and I'm, talking, I'm not talking about people dealing with governors. I'm talking about people having direct relations with emperors on behalf of the Jewish people. There is a case in the Parthian Empire. Many people don't know this, but we had, there's a town, there's a town here in what is today Iraq, in the marshlands off the Euphrates, that will be known to a few of you called Nahardea. Nahardea is very close to another town called Pumbedita, where there was a tremendous Jewish community. Remember, there has been a Jewish community in Babylon, in Iraq, since the first temple. 
And that's the same continuous community in many ways, with its ups and downs. And at this stage, it was starting to thrive again. And from the year 18 to the year 33, there was an independent state in Nahardea, an independent Jewish state that was started basically by two robbers, highway robbers, bushranger type figures called Anilai or Hanilai and Asinai. And they were basically running around, terrorizing the whole area, and eventually in some kind of mafia operation, got control of this entire region of Nahardea. And rather than fight them, the Parthian emperor, Atabanus III, said, okay, you can have it, it's your own state. And there was a Jewish state within the Parthian Empire for about 15 years. But the really big, obvious examples we're talking about, just to give you an idea, was of course, we know that the events, and I'm just going to mention them briefly because they are important, 10, 20, 30, 40, the events that happened around 3940 under the Emperor Caligula. Put your hand up if you know what I'm referring to. I'll remind you and you'll all go, oh yes, of course. As you know, every Roman ruler was a psycho. But um, in, in a club of psychos, Caligula was in his own league. He was in fact basically the first emperor who turned around and said, you know, when I die, the Senate are probably going to deify me because what, they deified Caesar, they deified Octavian, they deified Tiberius. Why wouldn't they deify me? But the thing is, I don't actually want to wait till I die to be deified. I think I'm going to be deified now. Thank you very much. And of course, all citizens of the Roman Empire had to pay obeisance to a statue of Gaius Caligula that was placed in almost every habitation. Every temple had to have a statue of Gaius. There was, of course, a new Gaius cult that was being enforced right throughout the empire. And, of course, the Jews went, excuse me? Um... First of all, we don't have foreign gods in our temple, and if we did, it wouldn't be you. Uh, and he orders, Gaius orders this huge 20-foot statue of himself to be made in Damascus that is going to be placed in the temple. Very, 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 very interesting. Why did he do that? There was an act that provoked Gaius to have a very, very particular view about Jerusalem. And that was the fact that on a certain occasion, the members of a, the, the, the folk of a particular town went one night and busted up his statue. That then caused him to say, if the Jews are going to be like that, I'm going to impose my statue in the actual temple itself. What town was that? What town was that? It's a little town on the coast, south of Yafo and like towards Ashkelon, called Yavne. 
Yavna first comes into our consciousness really as the town where they busted up the statue of Caligula. And that sent Caligula spectatic, and he said, I'm going to get this big statue, and it's going to come to Jerusalem. And of course, we had to make some very, very, very serious delegations to ask Caligula not to do that. The biggest delegation was led by the leading Jewish figure of Alexandra, who was both a kind of a lay figure and a kind of a spiritual philosopher figure called Philo. Many of you would have heard of Philo. And you can still read Philo's mission to Gaius on behalf of the Jewish people. And they explained to Gaius, you can read it detail by detail, we were taken from this room into that vestibule, into that hall, and eventually we're standing in front of Gaius. And we said that we are from Judea, and that we are this, and our nation is this, and our faith is this, and our tradition is this, and we can't do this, and we can't do that, and we want to respect the emperor, we want to be loyal, but you can't put a statue of yourself in the temple. Because if you put a statue of yourself in the temple, every single Jew in the land of Israel will kill themselves before they allow you to do that. And Gaius goes, and completely fell on deaf ears. Now Gaius had been at school with a grandson of Herod, with whom he was mates, called Agrippa. And he'd actually made Agrippa a shtickle king at the time, like a mega serious lay leader. And so Agrippa also went to Rome and spoke to his old friend Caligula, but nothing helped. And it was only on the 22nd of Shvat in the year 41, when the statue was on its way to Jerusalem, that Caligula died. As a result of which, the decree was annulled. We kept Caligula's Yahrzeit as a holiday for many, many years after that. But Agrippa stuck around in Rome and was instrumental in the election of the following emperor. Yes, Claudius. So Claudius was elected with Agrippa's help. So Claudius said to Agrippa, go back to Judea and I'm going to give you more land and I'm going to give you more covert and everything like that. And Agrippa was very, very thick with the Pharisees and the rabbis and even and Raman Gamliel and his students. This is in the 40s and things could have gone in a very different direction. But Agrippa died died quite suddenly and quite young and that after that the Romans just imposed the most awful awful direct control yet again and the one other small example I want to talk about is here in the 50s and that was the mission of Josephus who was Josephus Josephus was someone who kind of almost sat between the gap between he was a from a priestly family but he had a Pharisaic education. So he had connections into those worlds. I'm not saying Josephus was probably not as learned as he thought he was and probably not as interesting and as charismatic and as talented as he thought he was. When you read Josephus, you don't actually think there's anyone else living in the whole of first century Palestine because he seems to be everywhere and doing everything and he can do it all. But he was sent by the Sanhedrin in the 50s already to try and organize the release of two priests that had been taken back to Rome 
and he we managed to somehow and it's very complex it's fascinating but it's not for now somehow josephus managed to become friends with Poppea, who was the wife of nero and through her influence was able to get these priests released. And that was kind of like the beginning of Josephus's career. So that if you move forward a dozen years to the council in defense of Judea, they actually made Josephus the commander of, or the officer in charge of the Northern Command. And that then leads to the story that we're going to talk about now. So despite all of these interactions that we're having as a people with emperors, None of it's really touching the rabbis or Chazal who are very busy running around going, oh, we're Chazal, we're interpreting the Torah, we are creating this amazing spiritual journey that people are having. But unfortunately, there's all these political circumstances going on around us. As you would be aware, of course, throughout this whole period, there are other groups inside the very, very complex Judean society other groups, but I'm focusing on the Pharisaic factions because they predominantly are the ones who are going to be the ones who are going to win this historical struggle. There's nobody sitting in caves at Qumran anymore except archaeologists and there's no Sadduceans running around because they ain't got no temple. Then the Nazarenes went and basically split off and formed their own thing. And so the journey of the people of Israel was conveyed through this tremendous spirit of the Prushim that went on to become Chazal. But there is a very, very defining moment that's about to happen. There's a very defining moment. And that defining moment is the fact that the revolt happened in 66. In 68... Nero went, that's it, we're going to take him out. And he sends in six legions in the year 68. This is all very familiar to you, you know this. We've discussed this many times. He has six legions and he's joined with another legion led by his son who's been stationed in Damascus. His son is Titus. Titus and they're, so they basically they go boom 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 and resistance is futile and they're knocking everything out and by 68 they have conquered the Galil and they have conquered Samaria and they have conquered Judea and they are at the gates of Jerusalem and they are sieging it and when your town in the ancient world is seized is sieged by 60,000 Roman troops. You know about it. And Vespasian was basically the top general. Why was this so important to the Romans? Why would they send six legions to Judea? It is, and it always has been, massively important geopolitically as it was then they cannot afford to let Judea out of the Roman sphere of influence apart from the fact that what sort of an example would set if we let places like Judea determine their own future and they siege Jerusalem 
Now, that is the point at which we have an extremely critical episode. And this episode is interesting because we have two distinct historical versions of this. One of them, written, of course, by the Prushim themselves, by the rabbis themselves and recorded in Talmudic literature. And that is the story of the encounter between Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Vespasian. And who is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is now more or less the spiritual leader of the Jewish world. It didn't pass on through the house of Hillel yet because Shimon ben Gamliel's son, Gamliel, who's going to go on to become Gamliel II, is still a bit young. The whole of the Sanhedrin and the spiritual leadership is taken over by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a student of the house of Hillel. And he, in fact, talked of himself as being the least of the students of Hillel. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai gets himself smuggled out of the siege city to have a very fateful encounter with Vespasian. That is one version of the story, and I'm going to tell that in a second. But the other version of the story, in almost exactly the same terms, is told by Josephus. And in Josephus' story, who's the main person who's having the dialogue with Vespasian? Josephus. And Josephus says to Vespasian, this has obviously happened some months before, when Vespasian was still in the north of the country and he'd conquered the town of Yotvata and they'd found Josephus, the commander of the whole defense of the northern Israel, quivering in a cave and they brought him before Vespasian and in an unbelievably brilliant dialogue, Vespasian is able to convince Vespa uh, Josephus is able to convince Vespasian not only to save his life, but in fact to make him kind of Josephus. He's going to go through and he's going to document all of Vespasian's conquests and he's going to become the dominant historian of this entire period just about anywhere and so much of what we know is from Josephus. And Josephus had said, Josephus records that he said to Vespasian, Hail Caesar. And the Vespasian says, I could have you killed for that. I'm not Caesar, I'm a general. But just out of curiosity, why did you say that? And Josephus explains to him that the rabbis have already received a divinely inspired tradition that, or communication, that Vespasian is going to go and become emperor. And as they're having the conversation, a dude arrives from Rome and says, Nero is dead, this one's dead, this one's dead, this is happening, you have to go back now to claim the throne. The armies of the East and the West have proclaimed you emperor, go now. Of course, Vespasian's very impressed and he leaves Josephus with Titus. Josephus travels with Titus and they get to Jerusalem. Now, almost exactly the same story is told about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is smuggled out of Jerusalem. He has an encounter with Vespasian. He says to Vespasian, Hail Caesar! Vespasian says, oh, I could have you killed for that. 
But as a matter of curiosity, why did you say that? And Yochanan ben Zakai, Robin, Yochanan ben Zakai says to him, because Jerusalem can only be taken by an emperor and you must therefore be an emperor. And as they're talking, the guy arrives from Rome, the armies of the east, the armies of the west to proclaim you emperor, go back to Rome and get your prize, become Caesar. Vespasian's very impressed. And he says to Yohanan ben Zakai, I'm very impressed. What can I do for you? As he's having that conversation, Vespasian realises that he'd better put on his boots. But his boots won't fit. This is the Talmud's recording of it. His boots won't fit. So he says to Yochanan ben Zakai, who's still standing in front of him, you wouldn't happen to know how to solve this, would you? Apparently my feet have swollen. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai says to him, the reason your feet have swollen is because your feet have, as, because people's limbs swell sometimes when they get very, very exciting good news. You've just been told you're going to become emperor, so your feet have swollen, they won't get in their boots. So Vespasian says, do you know how to fix that problem? And Yochanan ben Zakai says, yes, we do. We know how to fix that problem. Just get someone who you don't like, who you really, really despise, to walk in front of you, just walk parade up and down in front of you, and believe me, your legs will reduce and you'll be able to get in your boots soon enough. And that's exactly what Vespasian did. He took Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai's advice. He had some person he really didn't like walk up and down in front of him, and he was able to get in his boots. Now, that seems trivial. That seems trivial. But it's not. It has the ring of truth about it. Why is it based on entirely separate historical sources? Because one of the famous things that they used to talk about in the Roman court about Vespasian, remember he was a Flavian. So he didn't come from one of the royal families that were producing Caesars. He came through the military ranks. Noble family, but came, you know, kind of like salt of the earth noble. And so it was a bit scandalous because they used to say about Vespasian that unlike any other emperor, he used to put on his own boots. Now that's a fact recorded by Suetonius and several other Roman historians, completely independently from the Talmudic account, that tells us that he couldn't get his own boots. Because at the end of the day, you'd be saying, well, why is Vespasian even putting on his own boots? Surely he'd have a slave to do that. But he put on his own boots, and that's why it's a kind of a ring of truth. But what did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai ask for? He's already predicted he's going to be Caesar. He's told him how to get his boots on. What's he going to ask for? And he asks for Yavna. He says, I want the town of Yavna where I can rebuild the cultural and spiritual life of the Jewish people. There's almost no doubt, said Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that you, meaning the Romans, are going to destroy the temple. You're going to destroy Jerusalem and you're going to destroy the temple. If you don't, somebody else probably will. The divine presence left the building a while ago. But Judaism does not belong in a building. Shuls are important, but Judaism does not belong in a building. We have, we're about to go on a very, very, very long exile. And the only thing that is going to preserve us in that exile, apart from the protection of the guardian of Israel, of God, who never slumbers nor sleep, is the memory of this place, 
and the one thing that only ever ensures Jewish survival, and that, of course, is Jewish education. Give me the town of Yavna, and I can rebuild the religious and spiritual life of the Jewish people. And Vespasian goes, that's not too difficult to organize. And he and a whole of the rabbis go and they set up at Yavna. That's already 18 months or so before the destruction of the temple. So they are already outside Jerusalem. All of the incredible chaos and mess and horrible tragedy and violence and everything that's going to ensue in Jerusalem bypasses them because they are already in Yavna. It's a very, very interesting thing in the light of today's discussion, is it not? Is it not? People talk about how they want to conscript the Haredim. They want to put the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, in the army, not have them learn in Yeshivot. It's interesting because it's kind of what they did. They didn't stick around in Jerusalem for the defense of Jerusalem, which anyway was a futile project and which Josephus had already told them it's a futile project. Josephus actually said on the council in 66, I've been to Rome. I'm here to tell you, you have no idea what Rome is. You think Jerusalem's a big town. One look at Rome and you realize you will never defeat Rome. But these guys didn't listen. Prophecy, God, Messiah, Apocalyptathon, Armageddon, it's all happening, the Kanaim, God's on our side, just like with the Hasmoneans, we're going to win, we're going to wipe out that garrison, the Romans are going to leave us, the Messiah's going to come, it's all going to happen. No, it's not going to happen like that. The Romans are going to come and they're going to kill you. So what we have to do is we have to preserve the continuity for future generations because Judaism means something in the world. It means something in the world. You know, I'm reminded of this when you look at this period. Now, I don't want to offend anybody in the audience. I really don't. Maybe a couple of you, yes, but most of you, no. But, you know, when you look at this period, for example, you see, you know the famous story. You know, in, in Mark, in, in the gospel, right? And Jesus is walking along, and he's, it's Shabbat. And he's walking in a field, and his disciples are walking behind him, and they're kind of picking some corns off the grains and they're eating them or whatever and the rabbis come up to him and go how's that happen right your followers are following you around and they're picking grains on Shabbat you can't do that on Shabbat and Jesus famously turns around and he says what no one's even going to say it even if they do know it they're too embarrassed to know it but he says of course the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath Yep. Uh, wrong. Wrong. The Sabbath was made for the world. And it was given to the Jewish people to be its custodians. That is the meaning of Shomrei Shabbat. We are those, we are that continuity, we are that people that keeps for the world a day of reflection, a day of spiritual rest and physical rest. It's not just you can't work, your animals can't work. Shorcha, v'avdecha, your slaves, no one works on Shabbat. 
And if there's no Jewish people in the world, I can tell you there would be no weekend in the world. And the world can never be ultimately enslaved. I could easily get on this soapbox. This is not a big theological discussion. I'm just bringing it about. These are important issues. Jewish continuity is important. And at this critical juncture, it was a matter of survival. So they're set up in Yavna. Now, who were... Just let me see the time. <laughs> not good. Not good. Okay, I'm going to have to finish up the next five, ten minutes, but we'll get there. Who were... The two students, how did, how did Yochanan ben Zakai get out of Jerusalem to see Vespasian? It was sieged, right? How did he get out? Huh? In a coffin. He pretended to be dead. Oldest trick in the book. Right? And two of his students took him out. Because you can't bury the dead in Jerusalem. So they have to be taken outside the walls. And once they're out the walls, right up to Vespasian's tent. Hello, Anra, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. We're going to have that conversation. The two students who took him out go on to become giants in the next generation. But very, very different figures. Both students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, both within the House of Hillel tradition. But one of them was Rabbi Eliezer, Ben Hirkanus. And the other was Rabbi Yehoshua Ben Hananya. Very, very different. Very different. Different classes, different outlooks. Eliezer Ben Hirkanus came from landed patrician class of Jewish, of Jewish uh, people in the land in Judea. His father had uh, extensive holdings in date palms. And, and date orchards. He was a landed and came from a landed and wealthy family. And once he was reconciled to his family, after having run away to learn Torah, he was reconciled from his family. He was quite a wealthy man. Rabbi Yeshua bin Hananiah was the opposite. He came from very, very little means. He was kind of like one of your folksy, you know, I don't really come from anything much. And oh, he was a Levi, he was a Levite, but certainly without any any substantial means and he was very very much in touch with the common people he basically taught for nothing if you wanted to go and study with Eliezer ben Hirkanus, it was not going to be a simple business he only took the best students and they all paid tuition it's an interesting facet and there are some very very interesting discussions in the Mishnaic in the Talmudic period about the different ways in which Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanus and Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania looked at things just to give one small example, and please, I'm only touching on this as an illustration because I kind of find it cute. But there is a discussion about the meaning of the word dvash. The meaning of the word dvash. Now, you're all sitting there going, oh, I know what dvash means. Dvash means honey. But Rebbe Eliezer ben Herkunus regarded dvash as the pulp of dates. Because... That's what the members of his class of society could access. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya regarded honey as the honey of bees, which a person might find wild in the forest. It's not something that you necessarily acquire or pay for or have to cultivate. So it's just an interesting example. Both of those rabbis, both of those companions became excommunicated in the following generations. And we're going to spend one minute looking at that. The temple is destroyed and the whole center, rabbinic and spiritual center of the Jewish world has now shifted to Yavna. The Sanhedrin is sitting in Yavna 
And now in the wake of that destruction, in the wake of the destruction of the temple and the conquering of Jerusalem by Vespasian and Titus, there was a total vacuum because all of the leadership of the Jewish world had failed. They had brought us into disaster and they had failed through their conflicts and their internecine arguments. They had failed. And so the rabbis at Yavna, in a sense, did not just become religious leaders, they had to take over the whole of civil administration in the devastated and ravaged country left behind by six Roman legions that had destroyed everything. Now, one of the, what are the things that Vespasian enacted? What did he do? What did he do? What did he do? Okay, so he destroyed the temple, or Titus did, but it's under Vespasian's now emperor. What else did they do? They built the Arch of Titus. They gave Titus a nice parade. They minted coins, Judea Capta. It was important for the Romans. It was a thing. It wasn't just, oh, yes, and we conquered the Jews. No, we conquered the Jews. And what else did he do? They took a lot of money out of Israel. Oh, they most certainly did. They took everything that wasn't bolted down and they melted it. And with that, they built the Colosseum, yeah. correct. Yeah. The real monument to the Flavian conquests is not the Arch of Titus. That's nice. It's the Colosseum, they, which they built from what they had taken from the temple and from Jerusalem. But there's one very, very influential thing that Vespasian did. And it's called the Fiscus Judaicus. He imposed a tax. And this is a fascinating tax called the Fiscus Judaicus. It's a Jew tax. And every Jew in the empire had to pay this. It was, there's different questions about exactly what it was. It was actually two drachms, but some people think it was quite a lot of money. Some people would think it was basically equivalent to the half shekel that used to be paid by everybody to the temple every year. And Vespasian basically said, well, you don't have the temple now. What are you going to do with that half shekel? I know, you're going to give it to us and you are going to support the upkeep of the temple to Jupiter in the Roman Forum. How humiliating for the Jewish world. The rabbis saw this as nothing other than a divine punishment. You didn't honor the temple when you had the chance. Now the half shekel you give to the temple will go to support the temple of another god and of your enemies. Bearing in mind also that after the war that captured Jerusalem, they closed the temple of Janus which was a temple that was only ever opened during a time of war. The Romans saw this as having arrived at a totality now that Judea was captive and all the Jews in the world are paying the Fiscus Judaicus. Now, as horrible, as horrible as the Talmud makes Vespasian and Titus out to be, our picture from history is a little bit different. We know, obviously, we know that Titus had a Jewish girlfriend and we know, I mean, those of you who are familiar, we so do not have time to go into that fascinating story now. But of course, he was doing it with uh, <clears throat> the sister of Agrippa and almost brought her back to Rome to be the consort of Rome. It was a phenomenal story. But he wasn't necessarily particularly 
undisposed towards Jews per se. The Talmud portrays him as a great wicked man because he destroyed the temple. But, and I'm not saying that's not correct, I'm not going to argue with Chazal, but the picture we get from history is a little different. What is fascinating is that Titus was, not, was only there for a few years, they built the Colosseum, he was turning out to be an okayish kind of emperor, and then he died. We're not sure if he died, or if he died. But the throne was taken over by his brother, in around 80, 81, Domitian. And Domitian was definitely... You, you know, I heard someone talk the other day about a current political figure and their administration saying it was a unique combination of cruelty and incompetence. You could probably also say that, although some historians argue Domitian was quite competent, but he was certainly cruel. It was a different kind of outlook. He was, the, the Senate eventually assassinated him. It was awful. And Domitian did something very interesting with the Fiscus Judaicus. And I'm cutting short now. I'm literally summarizing because I have to wind up. But this is really a fascinating point that, of, of, of where I want to get to. Because Domitian instituted a new set of applications of the Fiscus Judaicus, whereby you only paid it if you were living as a Jew. He started treating the Jewish people not as a people, but as a religion or a faith system. It's a very, very important distinction. Who do you think benefited from that? Anybody who didn't want to be Jewish. Anybody who wanted to be part of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, make no mistake. Make no mistake. <laughs> so I, I really should have prefaced this earlier in the talk because some people are not realizing this. In the first century, in Rome, we was rampant. We were going around openly proselytizing, missionizing, because we couldn't believe that when we arrived in Rome, the Romans certainly in the first encounters with Rome, the Romans regarded the Jews as unbelievably spiritual and enlightened people whose religion was so superior to anything that they had, and in fact it was. We had a written text, we had a monotheistic idea. This wasn't some random capricious God who could do this and do that. This was a God that had a covenant with a chosen people guiding them through history with a moral and ethical program and idea. And you could participate in this covenant. And it was amazing. And some estimates put the fact that at some point, maybe even up to 10% of the Roman population was Jewish. We were so successful that twice during the first century, we were kicked out of Rome. Tiberius kicked us out, only for a short while at a time, because we were creating so many converts, there was so much unrest. That, those attitudes towards Judaism and proselytizing changed, obviously. We don't behave like that today. Well, most of us don't. <laughs> I'm having, I have to, uh, I have to, uh, I mean, why do you think, why do you think 
that Christianity really starts with Paul. And I'm not focused on Christianity except for the fact that we are in that century at that time and that is a big consideration. Why do you think that Christianity really takes off from Paul? Because Paul was able to argue that you can participate in the Abrahamic covenant of the God of Israel and all of its, what he perceived as salvational effects, without having to keep mitzvot and in particular circumcision. Because that kind of freaked a few people out. They wanted part of it, but it was a bit difficult. And we see stories relating to that right throughout Rome and Jerusalem and so on. It's a fascinating thing. We could spend entire talk on it itself. But I just want to get to the very end of this century. There were various enactments in Yavna. You know, Yavna had to basically start again. How do we carry out Judaism without a temple? Now, to us, it seems very easy because we've never had a temple. So what we know is what we do and what we do is what we know. And when we don't know, we ask people who do know and they look, ask other people who know and they look at books like they've got the, you know, the Shulchan Aruch and the Tur and the Rambam and the Gemara and the Mishnah. We've got it. But if you don't have any of those things and your religion was more or your faith and spiritual system was more or less temple focused, now the temple's gone. What are we doing? So the rabbis have to institute things like the Amidah prayer to substitute sacrifice. They have to introduce all sorts of different things within Judaism that we can't go into at length today. For example, for example, that people were going to have Lulav and Etrog for the whole festival of Sukkot, whereas that used to only happen in the temple. That the Shofar was going to be blown on Shabbat in Yavna like it was in the temple. All of these things were to commemorate the temple, but they also have to build the whole of Jewish life from scratch. But by the time, and, uh, and if we had more time, I wanted, I was a bit ambitious. I wanted to go into the major political structures that had happened in Yavna. As you know, Rabban Gamliel took over from Yochanan ben Zakkai in the year 80. Yochanan ben Zakkai went and retired at some village so he wouldn't get in his way. Rabban Gamliel became the big leader of the Sanhedrin. And he excommunicated his brother-in-law, Eliezer ben Hirkonos. He excommunicated Yoshua ben Hanania, all for fascinating reasons and all to do with the class politics inside Yavna. And eventually, well, I don't need to tell you, you've got Pesach coming up. When you read the Haggadah and all those rabbis sitting around in Bnei Barak, that's who we're talking about. And these four rabbis went in 96 to Domitian, to ask and plea on behalf of the Jewish people to change the nature of the way in which the Fiscus Judaicus was being applied, but also to try and abrogate some of the utterly humiliating, humiliating procedures. Because he, Roman historians, even non-Jewish, nothing connected, Roman historians that you read will tell you that old men were being dragged in to courts and things like that and their hosen were being pulled down to see if they were circumcised in order to get the fiscus judaicus out of them. It was awful. And these four rabbis, the leaders of the whole Yavna project, went on a boat. There is... I've only got one minute left. There is a fascinating, there is a fascinating aspect about this that shipping voyage, apart from the fact that it was Sukkot and they had a sukkah on the boat. But what happened was uh, each of the rabbis had brought provisions for the journey 
and uh, all the rabbis ran out of food, except Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah, because Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah had not just brought bread, he'd also brought flour. So we can make flour. So they said to him, how did you know to bring flour? Like, really? Like, who brings flour as well as bread? And he said, because we have a tradition that once every 70 to 75 years, there is a star that appears that sometimes leads navigators and sailors off course. So I started to think that we might become delayed. This was, in fact, is regarded by later astronomers as one of the earliest recorded ideas about Halley's Comet, that is the only visible kind of star-looking comet that appears every 70 to 75 years. It's a difficult story. Don't go run home and immediately and think about it too much because I've done the work for you and it, I can't see where an appearance of Halley's Comet could have happened in that sequence in the 90s. So maybe he was talking about some other star, maybe he just got it wrong and they got lost or whatever. But it's a very, very fascinating historical outcome of that particular voyage. They got to Rome to speak to Domitian. But Domitian was dead. <laughs> so Domitian had died. And therefore, they had an encounter with his successor, who was Nerva. And Nerva fundamentally changed the nature of the Fiscus Judaicus. He got rid of all of the horrible, degrading practices. And he said, we're going to keep the Fiscus Judaicus, but we're going to be very, very lax in its application. So it's going to be a general thing. We're not going to be too, you know, it's going to basically be Fiscus Judaicus cannabis, about that level. And that's a joke. And we're not uh, going, so it was a fundamental change. And in fact, for the next two, three years, because Nerva unfortunately only ruled for a couple of years, there was this kind of respite for Jews right throughout the Roman Empire. That is, and that is a condition that once again allowed Yavna uh, to flourish. By this time, of course, Rabbi Akiva was already on the ascendant, enough already that he was included in that group. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, who was the co, the co-Nasi with Rabban Gamaliel, because Rabban Gamaliel had been deposed and then reinstated. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah was there. I would have liked to have talked more in detail about their particular stories, because we've got the Haggadah coming up and it's all there. Um, and of course, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, those four were the ones that went and had this very, very fundamental encounter with Nerva. Unfortunately, Nerva was followed by uh, Trajan, and we will talk about Trajan beginning from Trajan next week. And I'm sorry that I had to spend so much this evening on introductions and laying down material, but it's very important for us to understand so that we can move forward in the development of what's going to become the Mishnah and the Talmud and so on in the light of all of these world events. So thank you for listening to that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.